Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for today. Um, we thank you that we get to be here together in this space, uh, this time. And Lord, we ask that you would take the truth of your word and the truth that we just sang about. And we pray that you'd move it from our heads to our hearts. And we pray, Father, um, that you would fill our hearts with joy and help us to understand, to comprehend, I pray today, and perhaps a new way, maybe perhaps for the first time. What we just sang about, the blessed assurance that you are ours and that we are yours, that our life is hidden with Christ and God. Um, there, there is no greater truth in all the universe than that we are united by faith in you. And so, Father, please, we just pray that you would continue to help us worship our way through the passage of Scripture this morning. We pray that you would change us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Men, good morning. What's up, Westside? Yeah. Good to be here. Good to see you guys. Um, you got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Romans chapter 3, verse 27, and then we will read all the way through chapter 4, verse 8. Um, Romans is good, amen? You guys liking Romans? Yeah, so far we're kind of walking through this uh, verse by verse in 2023, although Romans is pretty thick, so even though we're taking a year to do it, um, I mentioned at the theater a couple weeks ago that uh, a couple of my heroes in the faith, John Piper, I think, preached verse by verse through Romans, like 266 sermons. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached verse by verse through Romans, 364 sermons. So in a lot of ways, we're just skimming the surface um, by taking about 50 weeks to do so, but, uh, but it's good. Let me, let me read the passage here, and then we'll get into it. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 27. Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? Answer, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? He's not the God. Is, is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Just pray with me one more time. Father, thanks for today. Thanks for your word. We ask now that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from it. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Um, I have a picture that I would like to show you guys as we start off here this morning. Um, this picture uh, happened, or this, this happened to this building 
on June 24th, uh, 2021, some of you guys may remember this, at approximately 1.22 a.m. It's a building along the, the coastline in uh, Miami, Florida. Um, the building, it seems that some sort of pillar underneath had given away, uh, had given away, quite tragic, um, some, uh, and some commentary from an article uh, in the New York Times about this incident. It says, from what can be seen in the video, part of the structure first slumped, seemingly falling vertically in one giant piece as if the columns had failed beneath the southern edge of the center of the building. Um, a, uh, a structural engineer named uh, Mr. Dusenberry uh, matched the, his impressions matched the impressions of several others who had seen the video, and he simply said, it would suggest a foundation-related matter, potentially corrosion or other damage at the lower level. Um, there's been more reports that they're pretty sure at this point that the contributing factor, one of the contributing factors to the building's collapse was the degradation or corrosion of some of the concrete structural supports in the parking garage in the basement. And what's really tough about it is that the problems had initially been reported in 2018, and then in April of 2021, just two months before the building collapsed, it was said to be much worse, much worse but unfortunately, it was, it was never taken care of. And I want you to just look at that for a second and just kind of lock that picture into your mind. And of course, the building now at this point has been completely demolished uh, because there was no way to repair it. But I show you that this morning because what we have before us in the passage is without question one of the primary pillars or columns that upholds the church. And that pillar or column that we're going to talk about this morning from this passage is the doctrine uh, that's commonly known as justification by faith, or sola fide, um, as it's known in Latin and it's kind of been said uh, throughout church history. Um, and I want you to lock that picture in your mind because that is what happens to the church, any church, the church at large, the local church, um, the church in a culture. Uh, that is what happens to the church when this doctrine that we're going to talk about this morning uh, falls apart. And again, the telling thing, or, or I, I guess the, the detail that, um, that I really want us to understand and, and work with this morning as we work our way through this passage and, and with this idea of the importance of this, of this doctrinal pillar for the church that we're justified by faith alone, um, it didn't fall because of a bomb an earthquake, a hurricane, it fell because of corrosion. Slowly, over time, uh, this doctrine was neglected and left alone to the point where eventually this column caused the building to fall. And uh, we have seen this happen throughout history in the church, um, and it definitely is still happening in our day. Martin Luther, uh, one of the great reformers, uh, who did not invent this doctrine, but recovered it in the 1500s, said, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines flow. 
It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. It is the master, it is the prince, it is the Lord, the ruler, the judge over all other doctrines. Are there other pillars that uphold the church? Absolutely. Um, we believe adamantly here, and I, I, I don't know if you attend Mercy Hill uh, for any period of time, you will hear me repeat it probably to the place where you might get sick of it, but I don't care. Um, <coughs> we believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the authority of the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. And we're going to beat that drum until we die or he comes back to get us. That's what we're doing over and over and over again. But again, one of those pillars that we're going to be looking at today is this doctrine of sola fide, uh, the doctrine that we are justified by faith alone. So here's how I want to work through this passage, okay, and thinking um, about that doctrine, which if you had to pick one passage in the scriptures that was going to articulate this doctrine, again, this doctrine is found all over the place, but if you had to pick just one passage, I would argue that you could not get a more ripe passage to uphold uh, the doctrine of sola fide than the doctrine, or than the passage that we're looking at here this morning in Romans. But um, just to kind of give us uh, a little bit of a handle of how we're going to work through this. First of all, I want to look at the doctrine's identity and then the doctrine's implications. And then I want to look at the doctrine and see it illustrated uh, by the examples of Abraham and David, uh, who we read about uh, a little bit ago. So first of all, just I want to talk about the doctrine's identity. And I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page here with what I'm talking about when we talk about the doctrine of sola fide, the doctrine that we are justified by faith alone. In Christ alone. What we mean when we say that we are justified by faith is that faith is the only means, this is very important, it is the only means by which we receive justification. What I mean by this is that the faith itself is not meritorious. Okay? What gives us merit is the work of Christ on the cross. Now, this is, I don't have time to go back and re preach the sermon from last week in the passage that we looked at last week, but this is part of the issue with going through Romans at the pace that we are. But last week's passage, the verses that come right before this, verses 21 through 26, are of the utmost importance because there Paul talks about that merit is found in Christ. That verse 23, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation, which means a satisfactory substitute. Okay, on our behalf. And he took the punishment that we deserve. Okay, um, Sinclair Ferguson expounds upon this idea that faith in and of itself is not meritorious, but that it simply connects us to, allows us to receive the merit of Christ. He says, we are said to be justified through faith, and we are said to be justified by faith. But we are never said to be justified on account of faith. And it's very, very important. Um, he goes on, he says, faith is the appropriate instrument of justification because in its very nature, faith is active in receiving Christ but non-contributory in, rela in relation to the justification we receive. Hang with me, I'm continuing to quote Sinclair here. He says, it has no constructive energy. 
It is complete reliance upon another. It is Christ-directed, not self-directed. It is Christ-reliant, not self-reliant. It involves the abandoning, not the congratulating of self. You understand? This is what faith is. It is looking away from self in every sense of the word. Uh, Theologian Wayne Grudem says something very similar, but again, I want to hammer this home. I want to make sure we're all on the same page on this. So this is what Wayne Grudem says. He says, we may ask, why did God choose faith to be the attitude of the heart by which we would obtain justification? Why could God not have decided to give justification to all whom those who who sincerely show love or who show joy or who show contentment or humility or wisdom? Why did God choose faith as the means by which we receive justification? He says, it is apparently because faith is the one attitude of heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. He goes on, he says, we come to Christ in faith and we essentially say, I give up. I will not depend on myself or on my good works any longer. I know that I can never make myself righteous before God. Therefore, Jesus, I trust you and depend on you completely to give me a righteous standing before God. In this way, faith is the exact opposite of trusting in ourselves. And therefore, it is the attitude that perfectly fits salvation that depends not at all on our own merit, but entirely upon Christ's free gift of grace. Uh, John Gerstner, again, just driving home the same idea here, uses the illustration of train cars and a locomotive and faith just simply being the coupling that links the cars together, that, that links the cars to the engine. Um, <coughs> he says the coupling has no power in itself. It cannot move a single car an inch. All the power is in the locomotive. But the coupling is the link by which the power of the locomotive is transmitted to the cars. Faith has no power in itself. It is not a ground of salvation. It is not a good work. It is merely that by which all the goodness and grace and the glory of Christ come to the sinner. Are you with me? This is super important. And I don't have time here. I mean, the, the, the implications for this are, are, are quite important and applicable, especially in our culture where um, uh, much teaching of what I would call the word of faith movement uh, has taken root where they seem to look in and say, my, my faith is so great and if I just have enough faith I can do this you don't even, they, they don't even understand what the nature of faith is faith is weakness utter weakness throwing itself upon omnipotence that's all it is and so to, to somehow boast that you have this great faith doesn't, it doesn't even make any sense it's looking, it's looking away from self do you remember those little word association games we used to do in fourth grade, I remember in Mrs. Hayes' class, Berlin Elementary, way back in the day, we'd do these little association games. Remember this? Work with me here. Um, a peach is to fruit as broccoli is to vegetable. Very good job. Thank you. I was, I was a little bit worried about the crowd participation portion of the sermon here, but you guys are right there. A bat is to baseball as a nine iron is to very good. Now listen, works is to the law as faith is to grace. You with me? It's all his grace, guys. This is how, this is how we receive it. Um, <clears throat> and if salvation was to be received by any other means other than faith, other than this looking away from self, other than this weakness, just calling out to omnipotence to come, and save it. The gospel would not be the gospel. The gospel would not be good news. Even if Christ had done all that he'd done, but we had to receive it by some other way, 
it would not be enough for us because it would be too much. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus did what he did and that what he did can be received just by faith, by calling out upon the name of the Lord. There is one other kind of, um, I guess within the uh, context of the definition of faith, there are some, some words here that, I, that the reformers use that I think are helpful for, under, for understanding it because there is counterfeit faith. There is just simply mental assent, acknowledging that some things are true, but that will not save you. And the words that they used, and again, these are just the words that they used. Um, it's in Latin. I'm not throwing out Latin to be to be fancy, but these are just the words that they use, and I think it, it provides some helpful categories, is that in regards to saving faith, you need all three of these, okay? Not to overcomplicate it, but you'll, you'll understand as we go along. Number one is what they would refer to as notitia, which is just simply the facts of the gospel. So the, the facts, like, like in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives us just some of the, the, the bare-bones facts of the gospel, he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you by which you received in and in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And here are the facts. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Those are the facts. That's the notitia of the gospel. The second category that they used was the, was the word ascensus. A census. So Natisha is the facts. A census is the belief that the facts are true. So you might hear those facts. You might hear that Natisha and go, oh, I don't know if it's true or not. Secondly, the thing we have to do to have saving faith is we have to believe that those facts are actually true. But even if we have Natisha, the facts, and even if we have a census, the, the belief that the facts are true, that is not saving faith. There's a third category. And that is what they called fiducia. And fiducia is actually trusting in the one who gives the facts and says that they are true. It is a personal trust in the truth giver. And this is very important because I think many people in our culture only embrace notitia and ascensus, and all it is is this mental assent. It's, this, it's just this mental ascent that, yeah, I, yeah I've, I've heard that. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. You know, I think it's probably true. Okay, I accept it. But they have not placed their personal trust in the one who did this and in the one who says that it's true and in the God who proved that it was true by raising Jesus from the dead. Is that saving faith is this faith that looks away from self says that these things are true, believes that they are true, but says, I need that, and I want it. That's what we're after, and that's what will absolutely change our lives. So that is the doctrine identified. I want to look now at the passage and talk about the doctrine's implications. And most of you know that through most of the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, the vast majority of it is all doctrine, and then in chapter 12 through 16, he transitions to more application of that doctrine. However, um, throughout the book, there are things that I would call implications of application or for application that he sprinkles throughout. And, and we see some of these in this passage. So look at verse 27. And, and the first one is this. He says, what then becomes of boasting? <laughs> in light of the fact that there's nothing you can do to save yourself and your faith is not meritorious, all faith is is looking away from self to the one who can save you. 
and asking him to do it. What then becomes of boasting? He says it's excluded. See, and, and now at this point, this is where we're beginning to examine the pillar to see whether or not there's any corrosion. Are you with me? And here's the first thing we want to look for. Humility. Folks, it does not make any sense to say that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and yet hold on to some sort of weird religious pride. That thinks we're better than anybody else because of the way that we were raised, the way we do church, or the way we do this, or we do that. Here's what we got. We got Jesus, and that's it. And if it wasn't for him bloodied, hanging on a cross, taking the punishment that we deserve, and by the power of God being raised again on the third day, we would have no hope. And the cross of Jesus Christ absolutely goes to the heart of man's pride on every level. And so if this doctrine that we say that we have, because again, I think it'd be very easy just to come out here today and just, and just to preach to the choir. And I think that, and I think that Paul knows that. In the Roman church, oh sure, yeah, yeah, Paul, it's only by faith. It's only by faith alone. But let's examine this pillar a little bit and see if there's some cracks in it. And one of the cracks um, that we might look for is that of pride, a lack of humility, a boasting in our ethnicity, a boasting in the way that we were raised, a boasting in our little church, a, a boasting in whatever. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows Jesus Christ in the cross and in, in what he's done. Not only should we see humility because of this doctrine, but there should also be diversity, and I'll give you these two together, diversity and unity. Now as you get into the text here, Paul says, what then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith, as I've just said. And verse 28 would kind of be the quintessential verse that would be the center of what you would look to for this doctrine of justification by faith alone. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And Paul's been saying this throughout, back in verse 20 of chapter 3, in verse 21, that this righteousness is apart from the law. We cannot add to it. But then he goes on, verse 29, he says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? See, part of the humility that he was looking for is a humility in regards to their ethnicity, the, the, the divide between Jews and Gentiles. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Back in that day uh, was, was, was massive. Um, and if there's a humility from this doctrine and that it should produce in our lives, there's also, by extension, going to be a diversity and unity. Let me tell you something, folks. Sometimes people call unity, they, or they call uniformity unity. Uniformity is when everybody looks the same, everybody dresses the same, everybody, everybody acts the same. That's not unity. That's uniformity. Unity implies diversity. Are you with me? Like, if we all look the same, act the same, kind of all want to be the same, what's, that's not unity. Unity implies that there's going to be diversity. And here's the thing that holds us all together. What holds us all together is the gospel. One of the things that has greatly grieved my heart, I don't think it gets talked about enough. You might disagree with me, but I'm going to open this can of worms and toss them out to you this morning. Um, is that I've been greatly grieved over the last couple years that evangelicalism at large, uh, the church in general, um, in our culture, 
has so failed on the topic of racial unity and racial reconciliation. And the way that we failed is that we've, it, it, it's like we, we, we tried to like signal some sort of virtue in that, well, let's have a conversation about this, or how can unity happen? As if it's a question. Do you know what the answer to racial reconciliation is? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here's, what's hold, here's what holds us all together. We are all sinners. We are all condemned before a holy, righteous God, and we are unrighteous. This is the common ground that we need to look for. This is, the com- this is where we start. That no matter your skin color, where you come from, what your last name is, you know, what your background may be, what your upbringing may have been, is that we are all condemned before an almighty, holy God, and we have one thing in common. We need Jesus. And man, we've just watched the church just punt on that message that we've been given that is to bring about this unity. Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. He's creating one new people, How? By the power of the gospel. As we read back in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that Paul says, I am not ashamed of this gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And folks, this is what we're on mission here to do at Mercy Hill Church, is we're making disciples and we're preaching the gospel. And the gospel that we preach is going to determine the disciples that we produce. And if we get get the gospel wrong, if we get the pillars wrong, of the truth of the message that the church is given to proclaim, then our discipleship, our lives are going to look weird. And so we've always got to go back to these foundational issues and what is actually true. And the church does not need to run around asking, what's the answer? What's the answer? How can we gain unity? Preach the gospel. Preach Jesus Christ. That's the answer. So this doctrinal, again, these doctrinal implications that should produce humility, diversity, unity, Third, it should also impact our missiology. And I hope you noticed that I worked hard to make those things all rhyme. Humility, diversity, unity, missiology. You're welcome. There's one more coming too. Um, it should impact our missiology. The way, and again, this is, it's, it's implied here in the text. He's saying, is God the God of Jews only? No, of Gentiles also. And that includes everybody. There's Jew and Gentile in the world. Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith? The Jews, and also the uncircumcised through faith. Can I, sometimes people say this to me, and I want to be really careful. You could give me some grace here for what I'm about to say, okay? Sometimes people will say to me, as we've grown at Mercy Hill, and we're not a huge, you know, I don't know, 300, 350 people on a Sunday morning out of the theater, I was here this morning, and they'll say, this, they'll say, man, did you ever think that this many people would be coming? Because we started off, it was just a little bit, I mean, we met in a room, I don't know, Matt, what was it? I mean, it was like, like, it was not big. In a little back room at a coffee shop at Newgrounds, I'm not, I'm not playing, like, it was, it was small, and like, I'd be preaching, and people were like, right here, and I'm like, yeah, you know, um, it was, it was pretty awkward, but we, uh, 
There wasn't many of them. Was, Man, did you ever think that? And, and hear me, hear me, hear me. I, our job is just to be faithful. But if I'm really honest, can I tell you what I think? No. I'm not surprised that we've grown. You know why? Because the gospel works. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And Jesus Christ is still saving people. Amen. And it works on the east side. It works on the west side. It works in the north and the south and wherever else you want to go. People need Jesus. And if we'll boldly proclaim the gospel, he is going to save people by his power. His arm is not too short that it cannot save, but this should absolutely affect our missiology, the way we look at mission. That, Folks, it's not just for me, it's not just for Matt, it's not just for the elders. Every single one of you, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are responsible before Almighty God to share this gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. And sometimes people say, you know, I just, I just want to live the gospel. I just want to let my light shine, you know. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Yeah, that's, that's great. Let's live, listen, let's live the implications of the gospel. But I want to make something really clear. The gospel is a message. You have to say it. You have to call people to repent and to believe in Jesus. And it is when that gospel is proclaimed, it's when it is shared. Not just from a stage on Sunday morning, not just from a pulpit, but in the midst of conversation, in the midst of ongoing conversation, in the midst of emails, in the midst of text, in the midst of having coffee with different people uh, across the table at a coffee shop. As the gospel is shared, God is pleased by the power of his Holy Spirit to make dead people live. (laughs) This is real, folks. And... If we believe that, that this doctrine, and again, that it's not, what do I need to do? Do I need to become a church member? Do I need to jump through a bunch of religious hoops? No, what you need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's the good news that we have to offer. Fifth, not only should this doctrine produce humility, diversity, unity, it should impact our missiology, but it should uphold our orthodoxy. Our orthodoxy. Now, where am I getting this from? I really do believe I, orthodoxy is probably the best word that could be used here. I didn't just use it because it rhymed, but I was happy about that. Um, it says, verse 31, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Answer, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So what do I mean by orthodoxy? Orthodoxy literally is, is, is from a Greek word that literally means the correct opinion. The correct, which is kind of funny because, you know, we all have our opinions. We all think our opinions are correct. But it literally means the correct opinion. And it's the idea of adherence to traditionally accepted creeds. Okay? That's what orthodoxy, orthodoxy means. And his question here, then, is one that he's anticipating that people will make in response to his message and teaching that the gospel is only received by faith. Okay, and that we're justified only by faith. The question will be, well, then what becomes of the law? Like, well, why would they ask that? Well, because Paul's adamantly hammering away that Jesus came to fulfill the law, and righteousness is only found through faith in him. And they're saying, well, what, 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 was the, what then was the point of the law? And Paul says, no, on the contrary, we don't overthrow the law, get rid of it. We don't trample it underfoot. We uphold it. Now, what does Paul mean here? There's 
there's one of two options, okay? And it depends, and you got to do some work here, okay? Hang with me. You with me? Okay? I remember in first grade, we had a teacher that would say, put on your thinking caps, and I, apparently the thinking cap was a bonnet, because she would come down here and she would, like, tie it then. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, but you got to, but Romans, Romans forces you um, to put on your thinking bonnets, I guess, um, but hang with me here. There's, it, it depends on, how, on, on what Paul means by the word law in verse 31. And there's one of two possibilities. Either he is using the term law in verse 31. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Um, and the word law is also used in verse 31. He's either using it in a general sense of just the Old Testament, which is possible. Paul, Paul uses it in that sense often. Um, and, in that, and in that case, if Paul was using law just in the general Old Testament sense, what he's saying is that we uphold the law by interpreting the usage of the law correctly. In other words, the whole point of the law is that we can't keep the law, and it's to drive us to the one that can save us from the punishment of the law. You with me? So if Paul was using the law in the general Old Testament sense. However, it's also possible that Paul could be using law in the, in the more narrow sense of just the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. And in that case, he is saying that we uphold the law by, um, by this way, is that only when we are justified by faith and the Spirit of God now comes into us do we walk in the law and much more. Meaning, how did Jesus sum up all the law and the prophets? You love God and you love people, right? So only those who are truly justified by faith receive the Spirit of God. We don't do it perfectly, but we're able to walk in fulfilling the law. We uphold the law. Um, by loving God and loving people. And again, I think you can make arguments both on, on both sides. Uh, the commentators on this passage are, are, are pretty spread out. Um, and either way, I think it makes sense. But the point is, is that it is this doctrine that gives right interpretation to the scriptures and it helps us to uphold all that God's word says. Again, going back to that Luther quote, if this falls, everything else falls as well. Everything else is going, is going to crumble. And I would just say this. Why is evangelicalism at large walking away from orthodox position after orthodox position? It's because this pillar has corroded. It's why the church at large is affirming all sorts of things that have long been declared wrong and are plainly not right from God's word. But we walk away from it because we've let, let this central pillar of justification by faith alone, sola fide, we have let it erode and corrode, and our house is crumbling overall. Okay, so Paul transitions here in the flow of thought, end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 1, and now he's going to illustrate this doctrine. Okay? He's going to illustrate it with two people, two very well-known characters from the Old Testament, Abraham and David. Let's look at Abraham first, because that's who Paul talks about first. He says in verse 1, he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about. So again, notice the link with boasting or humility. Back in verse 27, also here, he's still in this same uh, flow of thought. He's saying Abraham would have had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And he quotes here from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and he says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness. And so Abraham also serves as an example that is upholding Paul's argument 
that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, this story in Genesis 15, you can turn there if you want. If not, I'll, just, I'll read it to you. But I'll look at these verses, and again, understanding the context here. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1, the writer says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he said, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Verse 5, And he brought him outside, God brought him outside, and he said to him, Look toward heaven and number the stars. And if you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your, so shall your offspring be. And then verse 6, which you just read in, in Romans 4, and he, Abraham, believed God. He believed Yahweh. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Here again, we see this. Uh, it, it's, not a, it's not a textbook abstract definition but we see Paul giving us a picture of what it means to be justified by faith. Is that you have this man and his wife that are barren. There's nothing they can do at all. But God has told them that they're going to have a child. Let me tell you something. Abraham, and it's kind of funny, we don't have time to trace this through, but if you, as you trace from Genesis 12 on through, it's like at one point it says, and Abraham was old. And then another point, like 25 years later, Abraham was very old. <laughs> you know, and it's like, so he's, he's old to begin with, and he's old. He's old later, and there's still, still no child. And here, this is barren man, and God's speaking to him. God gives him this promise. You're going to have a son. He's like, what in the world are you talking about? And here's the picture of faith that I want us to get. Is that God brings him outside. He says, commands. He says, look to the heavens. Abraham looks up. God says, so shall your offspring be. And here's what faith is, folks. Abraham goes, in all his barrenness, okay. Okay. And he, it says, again, that he trusted Yahweh. He didn't just have notitia or a census. He had fiducia. He trusted not just the promise, that was included, but he trusted the one who gave the promise. Are you with me? In all of his barrenness, and this is why I think Paul is hammered away up at this point in the book of Romans, to make us feel our barrenness the barrenness of our sin. That there is nothing that we can do. But folks, folks the, the good news of the gospel is we don't just come out and look to the heavens. We look to the one who came from heaven. We look to Jesus who came down to earth and died on the cross in our place and rose again on the third day. That's Paul's first illustration of this doctrine. And to the one, he goes on, 
In verse 4 he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now I, I mentioned this in my message last, last week, but this word counted is, a, is of extreme importance for understanding the idea of being justified. Okay, If you have uh, other Bible uh, English translations, you might have the word credited there instead of counted. If you have the old school King James, or I believe even the new King James, uses the word reckoned. That's fun to say, right? I like to say that. Reckoned. Um, that it's reckoned to him as righteousness. But this is of the utmost importance because the idea of justification it is not that God actually makes you righteous it is that he declares you righteous and this is super important and let me explain why because Jesus Christ took our sin did Jesus Christ actually sin no but God declared he imputed our sin to Jesus in the same way we are not actually righteous but God declares us righteous and see, this right here, and, and we're going to tease this out as we walk through over the next several months, the book of Romans, and especially as we get through chapter 5 and then into chapter 6, 7, and 8. This is, it's so practical and it's so important, but this is why people do not understand that if they have been saved, why do I still sin? The reason you still sin is because you are both simultaneously a sinner and a saint. But you are a saint. You are holy, but not because you fully are righteous, but because God has declared you righteous. He has clothed you in the righteousness of Christ. Now, do we have help from the Holy Spirit once we are justified to walk in practical victory over sin? Yes, but it is in His power, not our own. And we will not do it perfectly until we get to glory. When we get to glory, when we get to heaven, the very presence of sin will be completely destroyed, annihilated. It will no longer exist. Now, we do, have, we do have power over, or we do have authority over the power of sin in our lives, but the only sin that we have practical power over is sin that we are convinced that we are already forgiven of. Don't miss that. And so if you are trying to get forgiven by gaining power over sin, you are going to spiral downward and be one depressed person. It all starts with justification by faith alone. You're like, wait, Eric, so, so you're telling me that even though I still sin, God declares that I am righteous in his sight, even though I'm actually not. He declares me righteous for Christ's sake. That's what you're telling me. That, that, that sounds like really good news. You're getting it. You're getting it. This is why if this pillar falls, everything else will fall. And this gets fleshed out all the time. The vast, and I, in fact, in some way, shape, or form, I would argue that all issues in my own life and issues that I meet with Christians and counsel people during the week, it all comes back to this. Is we flip justification and sanctification. Sanctification being the process by which God, by the Holy Spirit and through his word, makes us like Christ. It's a process. But we try to get our justification to hinge on our sanctification. And one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to become despairing or you're going to become a liar. Because you still sin. Even if you hide it from people, you still sin. And your only hope is that the blood of Christ has declared you righteous. You with me? Okay, we'll, 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 we'll 
okay, we'll keep going. Here we go. So this righteousness is counted. It is credited. It is reckoned as a gift. And then here's the second illustration that he uses, and that is of David. And he quotes one of David's psalms here. This is from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And I want you to hone in on the word blessed or blessing here in verses 6, 7, and 8. Um, he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. He says, and he quotes here from the psalm, Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now this idea of blessing, hang with me and we're almost done, okay? One more kind of thought here, but you gotta hang with me is this idea of blessing. This idea of blessing is a massively important concept throughout the Bible and especially in the, in the Old Testament. Um, R.C. Sproul, I think, summarizes it well when he says, blessing is the highest experience and joy of the human soul um, is the experience that blessedness that only God can give. I, I read that terribly. Here's what he says. The highest experience and joy of the human soul is to experience that blessedness that only God can give. In other words, blessedness, it, it only comes from God. Very quickly, survey of the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6, um, one of like the primary benedictions, probably one of the most famous benedictions you'll hear anywhere in the scriptures. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. What's that like? The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Another place that, um, to understand this idea of, of blessedness is in the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. Psalm 1 and 2, a little side note here, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 serve as kind of a, a, a key to interpreting all the rest of the Psalms. Okay? Psalm 2 is a messianic Psalm. It's very strong about Jesus, and again, all the Psalms ultimately point to Jesus. But <clears throat> Psalm 1 is how we can walk before God in a way that is blessed. In fact, the very first word of the book of Psalms, and of obviously Psalm 1, is this word blessed. It says this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Well, what is this man like? What is it like to be a blessed man? Here's what he says. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. So this idea of being blessed, David compares it to a tree. And this tree bears fruit, and its leaf does not wither. In other words, it doesn't die. Why does it not die? Because it's planted by streams of water. It, in other words, it has a source that is not going anywhere. And it is rooted. It is planted by this source. And this source does not fail it. And brothers and sisters, when, when David then pulls this idea of blessing into Psalm 32, he says, blessed. So this, this also is like a man who's, who's like this tree <laughs> that has a source. Blessed is the one to whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no 
deceit. So just like Abraham came out and he looked to the heavens, and we don't just look to the heavens, we look to the one who came from heaven, in the same way we are like the tree in Christ that is planted by streams of living water, and those streams of water are Jesus Christ and the work that he has accomplished for us. Nate, you can come up and we'll, we're going to close. Do you remember the song that we sang earlier this morning? I think it was the second one. Blessed assurance. Then what does it say? Justification is mine. Jesus is mine. You understand, brothers and sisters, that all these things, all these ideas, justification, propitiation, redemption, the alien imputed righteousness of Christ, um, that we are justified by faith alone. It's all about Jesus. It's all about trusting him. And yes, ultimately, for eternity, for salvation. Again, the common ground that each one of us holds together is that we're human and that we're sinners and that we will die and that we will spend eternity somewhere. Um, but we have the answer in Jesus Christ. And eternity is of the utmost importance, but I, this, this plays itself out in a lot of practical ways too. And I wonder if this morning, in fact, I don't wonder, I would argue that I'm sure it's true for each and every single one of us, that each and every one of us has situations, we have relationships, we have things in our life where we're like Abraham standing out there going, I, what am I going to do? Well, there's nothing you can do except trust in the one who will never fail you. That's it. And so earlier on in the book of Romans, again, we're talking about justification through faith, and it's a one-time deal, and I want anyone who's here this morning who does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, you do not know where you would spend eternity if you would die tonight. I want to tell you the answer is by believing in Jesus, and that's it. But for anyone else who, like, what do I do with this situation? You just keep believing him. Because he has never failed. Amen? He has never, ever failed. But Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we are united together in Christ, but we're also united together with those who throughout history have just simply looked to heaven and have trusted that you will do exactly what you say you're going to do. And Father, I, I pray that you would even grant that ability right now for whatever the situation is in each and every life represented here this morning. God, help us to look away from self. Help us to look to the cross. Help us to look to Jesus, now risen, seated at the Father's right hand, always living to make intercession for us. We love you, Lord. We thank you for being good to us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me, please, and we'll sing.